everybody. I hope you enjoyed your French fries. I definitely enjoyed mine. Um, I'm going to reintroduce Richard to us, and we're going to have a question and answer period now. So um, if you'd like to um, head over to the mic, you can certainly ask him uh, your questions. And if you have a written one, please bring it uh, forward to me. Thank you. Okay, don't knock each other over on the way to the mic stand. I'm breezing, okay. Maria Fitzpatrick, and a discussion we had just started to have at the table about uh, the, the non-layoffs that are happening because they're going to be taken care of by attrition, according to the UCP. And as I said to you twice, I received layoff notices with the federal uh, public service. And what they were doing was when somebody uh, retired or left for another position, they didn't fill the position. But it meant everybody in that unit had to pick up the work. So if we're losing teachers and we're losing nurses, Who's picking up that work, and who is going to be uh, drastically affected by it? Uh, who do you see as the victims uh, when this kind of thing is done? Either Albert, education yeah. or uh, hmm? with the cuts that happen through attrition. Well, I think it depends on what they're being, you know, uh, what the nature of the jobs are, et cetera. Um, that's why I sort of said we need sort of some surgical kind of, if we're going to make cuts, let's do it properly, not just across the board. You know, there are inefficiencies, definitely. I mean, and it's not just a public or private sector thing either. I think anybody who's ever had a job knows that there's probably some fat to be cut, right? Uh, it's just a matter of where it's going to be cut. So if you, if, you know, if you have, let's say, a bunch of teachers and, and yeah, all of a sudden your classes go up by five students or whatever, um, yeah, that, that could be a problem. If you have a teacher that's maybe deployed in another way that they're not on the front line, and maybe their job is redundant, then they could be removed much easier, right? Um, I, I was talking to a friend at the, um, <clears throat> my place the other night, and he, his wife works at the hospital, and we're sort of talking about that, and apparently there's a lot of nurses that, uh, and this was his, his saying, not mine, I'm not exactly sure the details, I haven't, I haven't looked at that deeply, but he's saying a lot of nurses will, will keep their jobs like, you know, minimal hours per month in order to hang on to benefits as well. And these are nurses with seniority as well. So they're, they're at the top of the pay scale. So I'm not gonna recommend that they be cut or anything, but those are the kinds of things that maybe should be looked at. That's all I would say. So, and, and we can't do that with just across the board 5% cuts. And I mean, the, the UCP's basically come out publicly and said, okay, you can work with us or against us. If you want these big wage increases, we're not gonna limit our uh, job cuts to just attrition. But I don't know in what universe you have to be living in to figure that attrition is not a cut. No, I'm not going to answer your question. <laughs> this speaker has too much attitude. No. Uh, Lori Pyle. So I know him as Rick. Rick, question. When you and Trevor did the uh, response to the Blue Ribbon panel and you said the dirty word of sales tax, coming from, like, as you know, Greg and I have lived in numerous pro provinces across the country. Did you take a look at what minimum sales tax could be required to help 
offset the um, reliability on uh, primary industries and primary services? The, the sales, with the percentage of sales tax necessary? Exactly. <clears throat> I forget the details, but I, uh, we could do it less than the prevailing sales tax in like uh, British Columbia or Saskatchewan. I think Saskatchewan's, what's that Saskatchewan? What's Saskatchewan? <laughs> five? No, I think it's more yeah. than that. Six or seven. I think we talked about a 5% sales tax being able to wipe out most of the deficit, basically. And then, of course, you use your natural resource revenues, you put those in the kitty, you put them in the, in the, in the heritage fund and save those for a rainy day, just like Norway's done. The, the Heritage Fund wasn't very well designed in terms of its mandate. And I, the only reason I know this is because I had a good graduate student who just wrote an interesting paper on this that I graded last week, otherwise I'd forget, but uh, he basically talks about Norway you know, doing the right thing and they have very strict parameters with their Heritage Fund. And they never reduce their taxes, right? Their, their sales tax, if, if you go to Europe, and of course I suspect most of you have been there, I mean, the sales taxes are really high in Europe and yet somehow they chug along and survive. And that's what Norway's done, they throw that excess revenue into their into their sovereign wealth fund. How much is that worth now? Over a trillion. The question was how much is it worth now, the sovereign wealth fund in Norway? It's over a trillion dollars US now. 16 billion, I think, Canadian, yeah, give or take, yeah. Hi, Marie. Hawkins, um, I have a question about the proposal of sales tax as well. Um, it's a regressive tax. It particularly hurts the poorest. Now, in Norway, they have social systems that nobody is going to go hungry because they pay a sales tax. But here, we've just had cuts to AISH and things like that. People like that haven't got the money for it. Why not consider adding um, a higher income tax bracket for those who are making over a million dollars? We have those people here in Alberta, and we're treating them the same. I teach at the university and I've asked my students several times how much they think that you need to have in, in Canada to be upper class and I have them do a secret ballot and every year it comes out to be one, between 100,000 and 10 million plus a year. Essentially, I think most people think upper class financially is whoever makes more money than I think I ever will. but. We're ignoring the fact that we're grouping people who make 250,000 a year with those who are making two or three million. Why shouldn't we increase, put another tax bracket for the very wealthy instead of a regressive sales tax? I mean, sales taxes don't have to be regressive. I mean, we have the GST, right? And this just kind of annoys me because my kids get like GST rebates. They got the carbon levy rebate, all that stuff. I'm paying for their bills and, I, uh, and they get the check. So, but uh, no, that, so that can be controlled for. I mean, it's a, it is a regressive tax, you're right, but th this is what the GST and the carbon levy kind of rebates try to mitigate. Now the thing, of, uh, most economists would agree that sales taxes are a good thing, value added taxes, uh, because they're hard to avoid. If you need a haircut, you don't just hop on your plane and go over to China and get a haircut for two bucks rather than you know, to avoid the tax, right? You just can't do that. Whereas income taxes, these are things that can be avoided. Corporate taxes can be avoided. And certainly corporations and high income individuals like you're talking about, not the 250K ones, but the 2.5 million ones, they're pretty astute at moving money around and they know what they're doing. They can afford to hire the people to do this for them, right? Whereas the rest of us, of course, don't have that advantage. So sales taxes are a good thing, but again, you're right, they are regressive, and so there has to be something in there to, to, to help the low income, especially in this day and age when age is being cut, and et cetera. So I agree with you, yeah. Hi, thanks for that presentation. I'm James Moore. 
uh, I enjoyed the, uh, the graphs and the economic analysis, but I just have a question about the ideology of economics uh, and Jason Kenney and his ilk. I mean, when you try to do a budget like this McKinnon thing and you, you refuse, you say you cannot look at revenue, for me that's astonishing. And I have to start thinking about people like Friedrich von Hayek or Milton Friedman and that school of economics. Do you think it would be too pejorative to say that Jason Kenney is the disciple of an idiot? Well, I wouldn't quite go that far. I mean, I, yeah, I wouldn't disagree, but I wouldn't agree. Um, <clears throat> I mean, you have to realize, I mean, this is something of big debates in the economics profession going on right now, that we've basically been too mathematical, we've been too, you know, uh, too much like physics, we're looking for equilibria, we're looking for shocks to systems, we're looking for chaos, you know, things like that, which is not really true because people are people, right? And just something like, uh, you know, a traditional economic model, I talked about, you know, cutting, let's say, public sector wages and those public sector workers might go to other jurisdictions, right? Well, that's what an economic model would say. Well, people are people, they're not chunks of capital, right? We call them human capital, but they're really people. And so they make decisions based on what their family situation is. What people don't like to move, right? People are homebodies. People don't like to leave their city, let alone their country, right? And, and we don't include that in economic models. So that's why a lot of people are starting to think about things more these days is that, hey, people are actually behind these decisions and it's not just some sort of nice little mathematical artifact that, you know, which is what the, the you know, a lot of trickle-down economics was, uh, et cetera. So we're thinking about a lot of that stuff today. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but it sure felt good to say it. My name is Mark Gettle. My question is regarding pensions. Uh, Kenny uh, recently grabbed pensions that were different pensions, like the teacher's pension. The teachers seem to be very happy with their pension plan and what it was doing. And he's taken that and he's put it through into a, some provincial pension plan. So would you be able to comment or do you know anything about what the future holds for public service pensions? I mean, a lot of people say there's nothing to worry about. Pensions basically work, and you know, the trustees tell the investors what to do. And in this case, it would be the teachers, their, their um, board telling, the, uh, telling AIMCO what to do with the money, basically. And AIMCO is supposed to be working at arm's length from the, from the government. Now, I've heard mixed opinions about that. A lot of people are saying, well, AIMCOs, don't worry about it. AIMCO, if, if they start, if there's some political intervention in these pension funds, that's gonna, the markets are going to go crazy and penalize them. Uh, which is probably true. On the other hand, people are saying, well, they might just appoint the board of directors to these pension plans that are directing AIMCO to do things that the government wants and maybe not what's good for the teachers or for, you know, the, uh, what's the, other, the other pension funds that are involved. But, I mean, our pension fund at the university is 80% in AIMCO or something like that. But we're, they're supposed to take directions from our funded, our, our, our advisors. So, I don't know, that remains to be seen. I've heard I've heard different opinions on it, put it that way, like I said, so. Hi, I'm Arlene Moore. I like how you captured a lot of uh, bite-sized uh, points in your presentation and summarized at the end what you were trying to illustrate. Um, do you think you could merge together um, the idea of, a they're calling it a progressive tax, but a sales tax and how that works when uh, in, in a province to generate supportive social service programs. And you had mentioned in the uh, presentation that Quebec, um, the salaries are, are substantially lower in Quebec, and, and that's for other reasons. And, and maybe that ha comes into play with what I... 
because I know Quebec has a lot of strong social service programs. Okay. Well, quite heavily. What's the question? Sorry. <laughs> What's the benefit of social service programs, and how does that relate to how we um, how that benefits the public? Because if we're if we're only thinking of dismantling um, certain programs that help the public, and we d and, and we don't think about how if we want to run a, a province where we, we have the infrastructure of strong social service programs, how does that play out in, in when you're looking across from different provinces? How can you compare different provinces and wages if you don't have that come into play as well into the, into the picture? I'm going to sort of paraphrase that a little bit. Okay, I think. thank you. I, I'm, yeah, no, I'm, I'm just... <clears throat> I think you're looking for the fallouts if we, if we do have cuts in these services, right, what the implications of those... <laughs> Done here. I think he understands. Thank you. No, I mean, I think it's. A, I mean, I think we have to. There's this obsession in this province and elsewhere too about deficit reduction, and deficit is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, they always say, well, you, can, you and I can't run a deficit in our budget forever, and we you know the money, blah blah blah. Well, there's something different between us and the province. Is the province doesn't die. We do, right? And so, what are we spending that money on today? And this sort of speaks to your point. I think is. If we're making those cutbacks right now, we're, you know, ultimately it's going to be the detriment, the long-term detriment of the province. A lot of time, what are we spending the money on today? Are we spending on education, healthcare, deferred maintenance, things like that? That are investments, or are we blowing it? You know, are we sending Jason and his friends to Saskatoon on a private flight, or whatever the case may be? Right? Uh, arguably, that's not as useful as you know, hiring a teacher let's say. So there are implications in the longer term. And this is something, you know, again, I wasn't here in the mid-1990s, but people today, and a lot of you people were, uh, still talk about the, the devastating effects of what Ralph did, right? The, the Klein cuts at the time, and how it took us a long time to recuperate from those cuts if we ever have. So I think that kind of speaks to your question. Uh, Art, Art Sanford's name, and, um, you know, I get a little disappointed when I hear people keep comparing Alberta to Norway. Alberta has sent $611 billion to Ottawa over and above normal. Just think, if they kept that money here and invested, they'd have more money than even Norway. But it would never be allowed because we were a province, not a country. My son lives in Norway. GST, 25% flat on everything. Just to drive to work in the morning in a city, he's in a city slightly bigger than Lethbridge, $5 toll road. Toll roads everywhere. This is what the government does over there in socialism. But my question to you is, when I look at what's going on, have you ever done a complete survey? Can you tell us uh, what the percentage of taxes per person is in Alberta compared to other provinces? Taxes per person? What kind of taxes are we paying into the government Lower. totals we're paying, we're, we're, compared to what other provinces this, are paying? This is part of the problem. We're paying, we're paying really low taxes in this province on a, per, on a per capita basis. We pay, you know, in terms of the total tax revenue per capita, uh, it's really low in this province compared to anything else. Oh, it's, oh, geez, I don't have those numbers in front of me, but it's, it's a quite remarkable, I, I could have brought them, and it's a quite remarkable number. It's pretty big uh, in a lot of ways. And, and again, the, you know, the sales tax like they do have in Norway, it's a good tax, right? Most economists agree with that because it's hard to avoid those kind of taxes. And Norway always ranks up there in the, you know, certainly in terms of uh, standard of living, ranks very high. And uh, so people, I think this is a different, I mean, I think 
we got to stop looking down south at their tax regimes and start looking at Europe and their tax regimes. So, and you know, I, I pay taxes like everybody else. I'm not a big fan of taxes, and, and I think it's not taxes that are the problem. It's value per tax dollar. I think is what people are after. And if people are thinking they're getting good value from that, and the roads you know, are shoveled, okay, don't get me going on shoveling roads in the city, but um. <laughs> But uh, you know, if people think they're getting value for it, if they go by and they see the city workers, the stereotypical city workers, ten of them leaning on a shovel and one guy digging, that's when the problems come out. I'm not saying I agree with the, that analogy, but um, yeah. So people want good value for their money, basically. If they get it, they're happy. I, I lived in France for a year, and the medical services they were outstanding. They were amazing, way better than here, in my opinion. You could get right in. Dentistry was covered. Your pharmaceuticals, everything, right? And we got to get that. I think we got to get rid of that attitude that the government's a bad thing that we have in this province. Something like Pharmacare in Canada would be a wonderful thing. You take, you know, you take the buying power of the federal government and you go in and you basically negotiate with these things. You know what, another thing that, while well, I'm on it, uh, and here's something else they've downloaded to us. I mean, school supplies. This is, this is something the school should be providing to the, our children, right? I don't, you know, I, I don't know how many stores I'd have to go to when my three kids were younger to get the purple duotangs or whatever the teachers required, which is fair enough. I don't begrudge the teachers. But you'd have to go all over the city trying to find all this stuff, and Staples was making a bundle uh, off, off school supplies. Why aren't those provided by the schools? At the very least, you know, that, that kind of stuff should come out of our tax dollars. Talk about regressive, you know? Anyway, rant over. <clears throat> uh, Maria Fitzpatrick for a second question. And I just want to go back to uh, the um, uh, taking over of the pensions from the public service uh, pension uh, groups. And I believe the number is 45 billion that they've taken from all of them. But there was a clause in Bill 22 that allows the government to take 10% of that and dictate to AMCO where that money is going to be spent. That is a concern, certainly from anybody who's going to be on a fixed income when they retire, that uh, they could lose that 10% uh, right off the top of their pension, and it could be put into oil and gas, which is the dying industry in this province. Yeah, I mean, again, the markets would probably act pretty unfavorably to that type of activity. Now, again, if they, unless they do it kind of under the table or something, which presumably they shouldn't be able to do, but I don't know that much about it, but I, I am concerned about that, and certainly a lot of other people are concerned as well. I mean, again, our pension at the university, a lot of it's with AIMCO as well, so. Now, we're one step removed from the other public pen sector pensions. We're independent, so even though our money's with AIMCO, the government can't touch us, so we're okay, but I can see why the teachers and stuff would be upset. They had, you know, it, it, it wasn't broke, why fix it, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, teachers seem to be happy about it, their pension plan. Um, current and, and uh, past teachers, right? Hi, Ken Sears. Um, <clears throat> it's been interesting to listen and there's been useful information here, but it's almost always been provincial level and higher that you've been talking about, you're making the comparisons. Uh, there's only really one reference to municipalities, and municipalities have a really limited set of options as far as raising revenue. They're mostly dependent upon provincial government grants. But that's beside the point at the moment. Um, do you know of anybody that's done any work focusing down on the average wages, the average income for uh, residents of municipalities, let's say under 10,000, because that's anything under not living in a, what's defined as a city in this province, and also the fluctuations of income in those, re, in those municipal areas because if your farming income goes up and down very, very drastically, 
unionized public sector jobs tend to be very stable and do tend, I think, to be a little higher. And therefore, my feeling is they pr pr provide a stability and economic stability for most of rural Alberta. So do you want, could you comment on that? Yeah, I think I, I, I wouldn't disagree with that at all. I mean, it's an important part of stability. We were sort of talking over lunch, and last time I checked, I said, although I could be wrong, today, nine out of the top ten employers were public sector employers in, in Lethbridge, right? We're sort of rah, rah, vote UCP, think we're real entrepreneurial and stuff, and our biggest employers are government, uh, and by, by, by a, a pretty wide margin as well. So I think that kind of stability is important. As far as, far as looking at things at the more, at sort of the sub-provincial level, it's pretty difficult to do in the data that I have. It's doable, but I've done stuff for the, just for the province. Again, but it'd be nice to, you're right, I think that's kind of an interesting point you make about, um, especially in, in rural areas when, the, when there's the volatile farm incomes that the public sector is a source of stability. And that's sort of traditionally been what public sector employment's been about is, uh, and again, a lot of people I think in this room have been you know, around the sun a few times and they can, they can correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember the you know, public service used to be something people would, with education anyway, with you know, university education, they would aspire to. This was something they were serving the public. This is what they did. And they, you know, they, they might not have been able to rock and roll with these high wages in the private sector, but they, you know, they were given the stability in return. And uh, that seems to have changed. Uh, I could go, well, I'll stop there. <laughs> Hope that answers your question. Uh, my name's Cheryl Bradley, and I just want to say how much I appreciate that you do critical analysis of some of the um, messages or studies that we are given by our provincial government. Um, I'm curious to know about um, the role that sales tax may play in consideration of equalization payments. We've, we've heard a lot these days about Alberta getting a, an unfair deal with equalization. But as I understand it, we're the only province that doesn't use a, a very important tool for revenue generation. So do you know, does the federal government consider that? when they look at whether Alberta deserves more from equalization? And what they basically do is based on <clears throat> our tax effort. Okay, they, they look at our ability to tax and a lot of the people in the federal government right now would basically say, no, our, we, we're not using that ability to tax prop, you know, as much as we could be. And so here's what I just told the, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the reporters, you know, there's been a lot of complaining about equalization payments and all the money that goes to, to Ottawa. And that doesn't go from Alberta, right, to Quebec. It goes through Ottawa. It's funneled through Ottawa, right? And basically, if we wanted to go ahead and either go down to zero equalization payments in some provinces or to receiving equalization payments, we were looking at a real de decline in our standard of living to do that, right? That would really reduce our tax effort. We couldn't, we couldn't tax the same way. New Brunswick can't tax the same way we can. Quebec can't tax the same way we can. And that's why they get equalization payments, right? They're expecting, and the whole idea is just to provide a comparable level of public services across the country. So there's been a lot of money that's gone from Alberta, but you know, we, we had it pretty good here for a lot of years. We still have it really good. I was just out in Nova Scotia and get to travel around the country a lot. We have it pretty good here. I mean, you walk through the university or any of our public schools or hospitals and just see how nice they are compared to other jurisdictions. So we gotta get used to that new normal, I think that maybe things aren't quite going to be as nice. But then on the upside, our equalization payments will go down too, right? So. Uh, James Moore, second question. Thanks. Um, 
actually, Cheryl had a question similar to what I framed in my mind. Um, so the ability of the provinces to raise money to provide social programs for the people in the province is a consideration in terms of how the federal government of Canada looks at providing those social programs universally. Would it be then the case that if Alberta had a sales tax and therefore generated more revenue for better social programs inside Alberta, that they would pay less? Is that? That I don't know. There's a complex formula that I don't even put my students through the torture of trying to understand. And I suspect sales taxes in that formula. Somebody else might know that, but um, no, I don't know exactly how that. So basically, what you're saying is, if we implement a sales tax here, how sales tax in Alberta, how would that affect equalization? Is that yeah, correct? I'm yeah. thinking that it would lower because we would be, uh, according to the formula, providing social programs at a level consistent with our ability to pay for them. Whereas yeah. in a province like. Quebec, where the taxes are very high, they are generating as much revenue provincially, and so the equivalency is balanced yeah. with relationship to that. So <clears throat> the next point is uh, Norway, the people there are happy to pay tax, as are the people in Denmark, as are the people in Sweden, because they know that that's the price of civilization. You know, it's, it's uh, a real uh, understanding of what a healthy society is, that you don't get all of these things without paying for them. And as far as the uh, Stat Pension Fund in Norway, it was actually modeled on ours, which started in 76. They started 20 years later. And as you said, they have over a trillion compared to 16 million, billion rather. Mm -hmm. So this is another relationship to understanding when you're taxed and you, as you said, what are you getting? What's the value of this? You can see, you know, healthy people, you can see well-educated people, you can see good Medicare, you can see all of these things, which are part of how you want to live. And so you're happy about it. You know, you don't see it as a, you know, they're stealing my money. You see it, oh, I'm glad to live in a society as healthy as this. And this will be the last question. Go ahead, Leona. Okay, Leona. Knut doesn't get to do his have last. one more. <laughs> okay. Hi, Leona Jacobs. Um, thanks for your talk, Rick. So I am a survivor of the Klein cuts, and at that time, um, well, as now, some of the the UCP groups that I hang out in on uh, social media, um, they see it as definite us versus them, private versus public. And uh, in the 90s, when the cuts hit here, and as you pointed out, uh, public sector is a huge employer in Lethbridge, er, southern Alberta generally, province generally, southern Alberta in particular. Um, one of the things we did was we put a sticker on our money. We got a bunch of stickers, and we put stickers on our money so that when they were spent, it said, these dollars came to you courtesy of the University of Lethbridge. And so I wonder if in your analysis you have um, done, crunched the numbers on, in terms of the multiplier effect of, of what the public sector contributes to the economy 
and hence with the cuts what the contraction is going to be as a result of the multi multiplier effect? No. <laughs> that's, the short, that's the short answer, but yeah, no, I mean, no, I, you're, you're right. I mean, I, I think we're, again, we're talking over lunch about this, and so, you know, until recently, we've been pretty okay in southern Alberta here, in Lethbridge in particular, because the public sector hasn't been cut, but now we're going to start to see that. We've been pretty much immune from the recessionary pressures elsewhere in the province, right? I mean, you go to Calgary, and of course, you know, you can find a parking space downtown now. It's no cheaper, but you can find one. Uh, all those kind of things. Fort Max been decimated, you know, off, uh, anyway. So we've been pretty lucky. We're going to see it. We're going to see it. I have no idea what size the multiplier is, but it's going to be, we're going to feel it. One short question and short, short answer. One. Yeah, very short. Uh, Knut Peterson is my name. Thanks for coming, Richard. That was awesome. Uh, I'd like to ask you to give your thoughts on uh, financial deficits versus infrastructure deficit which is kind of what we ended up with both, both in the Klein years. We, uh, he balanced the budget, but we probably had a $50 billion infrastructure deficit, which, uh, which we're still trying to deal with. So can you give, uh, give your thoughts on, on that? That's the first thing to be cut, right? Maintenance. <coughs> that and school music programs. Um, but yeah, the, you know, I mean, the, the, you gotta pay sooner or later for these types of things, right? Um, and so if you're just deferring maintenance, you just, in fact, you can exacerbate the problem a lot of times by, by, by um, so you can pay now or pay later. So it's, it's kind of, you know, penny-wise, penny pound-foolish, deferring that maintenance in a lot of ways, right? So you can do something like balance the budget, and it looks good, and everybody goes rah-rah and, you know, waits for their check from Ralph. Uh, but eventually you have to pay for it, and we did in Alberta. Okay, thank you very much, Richard, for your thought-provoking uh, presentation. And um, I just want to remind everybody that SACPA will be adjourned until January 9th when we'll have Shannon Phillips as our speaker and she'll be speaking on the shadow budget. So if we could take one more moment to thank Richard and I want to wish you all a Merry Christmas.